Welcome to the TV Festival podcast, a new podcast from the Edinburgh TV Festival. On the lead up to our 2022 return to Edinburgh, the TV Festival are releasing a series of our esteemed McTaggart lectures in a podcast format. In 2020, historian and broadcaster David Olashoga was tasked with delivering the McTaggart lecture in the festival's first ever digital edition amidst a global pandemic and shortly after the Black Lives Matter movement. Olashoga used his address to decry a lost generation of diverse TV talent who had given up on an industry stacked against them. Olashoga campaigned for real structural change within the industry and drew from his own personal experiences to expose the prevalence of racism in the UK TV industry to this day. This is David Olashoga's 2020 McTaggart Lecture. Good evening and thank you. It is such an enormous honour to be standing virtually here before you today. And it is truly a daunting prospect to be giving this James McTaggart Memorial Lecture. I'm humbled to have been given this platform to talk to you, members of the British television industry. The last time I attended a McTaggart Lecture was in 1998, when I was part of that year's Edinburgh Television Festival's Wands to Watch, which back then was called TV25. For me, it was an amazing experience to be at the festival so early on in my career, seeing the tribes of television gathered together. And it was only then that I got a sense of the scale and the dynamism of this great creative kingdom whose walls I had somehow managed to scale. I learned a lot and had a lot of fun. And of course, the scheme is still going strong. Looking back at McTaggart lectures from the past, it is almost compulsory in the first couple of minutes to say something along the lines of, this has been a year of incredible change, or we stand on the threshold of a new era for our industry. But in 2020, I think claims like that have never been truer. 2020 has been an historic year, a year of terrifying and bewildering events that have affected all of our lives. And the impact of the past six months on our industry have been serious and troubling. At ITV, profits for the first half of the year have halved, although most productions are now back up and running. Channel 4, in that channel's first year with its shiny new regional hubs up and running, has faced lost revenues and cuts to its programming budget. And now we have some idea of how the pandemic and the lockdown and the suspension of normal life for all of us has changed viewing patterns. The day after lockdown began, Disney Plus was launched in the UK. Since then, it has become the world's third largest SVOD channel. On top of all these changes, we can be sure that every broadcaster and every production company, indeed everyone who works in our industry or aspires to work in it, is going to be buffeted by the recession that is already upon us and becoming more severe by the week. But the other seismic event of 2020, of course, was the brutal murder of George Floyd and the global movement that has coalesced under the banner of Black Lives Matter. These events, the pandemic and Floyd's murder, created a chain reaction. A new virus made manifest and obvious some of the oldest and deepest inequalities in our society. We already had the statistics. They were in reports that only a few journalists and academics ever read. But we all knew 
that people of colour in our society have inferior access to housing, worse health outcomes, fewer career options, and that they receive inferior treatment in multiple aspects of daily life. But in 2020, inequalities of class as well as race determined not just who got on in life, but who got infected and even who lived and who died. Black Lives Matter and the pandemic have forced our society to have discussions that for decades we have put off or we've avoided. 2020 is not, therefore, the year to avoid hard truths or pull punches. In the spirit of Black Lives Matter, in the spirit of an age in which millions of people have come to recognise that silence on these issues is a form of complicity, I'm going to say what I really think about diversity, race, and our industry, and I'll discover if, at the end of it, I still have a career. I'm going to talk about my own experiences and those of other black people I've known in my time in TV. I'm going to speak from my own perspective, that of a black person, but I'm well aware that these and similar issues affect people from other minority backgrounds and that race, class, gender, sexuality and disability all intersect. I've spent over 20 years in this industry and I have, I hope, a distinct perspective. I've seen it from both behind and in front of camera, from within the BBC but also from out in the indie sector. And I've been given amazing opportunities by television. But I've also been patronised and marginalised. I've been in high demand, but I've also been on the scrappy. I've felt inspired and convinced that our job, making programmes, telling stories, is the best job in the world. But at other times, I've been so crushed by my experiences, so isolated and disempowered by a culture that does exist within our industry, that I've had to seek medical treatment for clinical depression. I have come close to leaving this industry on several occasions, and I know many black and brown people who have similar stories to tell. I'm going to talk about those experiences, and later I'm going to offer my thoughts as to how our, how our industry might ensure that this moment, this year of 2020, is a real and decisive moment of change. Only those who remember the civil rights struggle of the 1960s can recall the time when the issues of race and racism were so passionately debated and so firmly on the agenda. Millions of people have this year engaged with these issues as never before. In June of this year, five of the top ten best-selling factual books in the UK were on race or black history. And in 2020, industry after industry company after company, institution after institution, examined their policies, scrutinised their internal cultures and found them wanting. Some have acknowledged the existence of structural racism. Others have faced up to their historic roles in slavery or imperialism. Our industry has been part of this great wave of introspection and action. The UK broadcasters have responded to Black Lives Matter with new initiatives. Vast sums, we are assured, have been pledged or ring-fenced. 
improvements are promised in diversity and inclusion within senior management and commissioning, and new programmes have been commissioned. So much has been promised that there is reason to hope that this really can be a moment of change for our industry, rather than another false dawn. And we've had a number of those. Later, I'd like to ask what it will take for the commitments made by the UK broadcasters to bring about real change. But first, I want to talk about the mountain that we have to climb. And here, most of what I have to say, you will have heard before. You may well have heard it from black and brown colleagues. And in many ways, that's the problem. We have heard it all before, but little has changed. For as long as I've been in the industry, we collectively have been aware that the people who commission and who make the UK's television programmes do not look like the population at large, our audience. In 2016, Directors UK reported that just 2.2% of the programmes in the UK were made by BAME directors. And of the directors on their database, just 3.6% were BAME, which means that even though the industry has long claimed that it is crying out for black producers and directors, many of those who were already in the industry were not getting work. Then there's the problem of retention. In their submission to the Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, film and TV charity reported that even before the current crisis, 73% of BAME production talent had considered leaving the industry. In the time I've been in television, the vast majority of senior black industry figures I've come across working within the UK broadcasters have either moved to the indie sector or left the industry. Some of this is normal churn, but some of it is not. That exodus of diverse senior production talent has, I believe, left the industry exposed. One of the sessions at this year's Edinburgh Television Festival asks, when will television have its first black channel controller? Twelve years ago, the festival ran a similar panel asking the same question. Will, will the festival of 2030 have yet another panel asking that same question for a third time? We are all so used to this state of affairs, I believe, that we would struggle to imagine what proper representation would look like. If you were to walk onto a filming location in London, and 36%, more than a third of the cast and crew were people of colour, you really would notice it. It really would feel unusual. And yet, all that would represent for a London production is a proper reflection of the ethnic makeup of that city's workforce. But of course, none of us have had that experience, because that never happens. Ask Steve McQueen, who in June said that although the lack of inclusion of people of colour in TV is undeniable and undeniably wrong, many people in the industry, he said, go along with it as if it is normal, when in reality it's blatant racism. It's wonderful that our industry has figures like Steve McQueen and others I could mention, but there is a risk that we point out those exceptions and use their talents and their achievements to hide from the wider reality. I want to be clear that I stand here today not as one of the TV industry's success stories, but as a survivor. I am one of the last men standing of TV's lost generation. 
the generation of black and brown people who entered this industry 15, 20, 25 years ago with high hopes and ambitions. I'm a survivor of cultures within TV that failed that generation. And I'm here because a handful of people used their power and their privilege to help me. One of the defining features of our profoundly divided age is the phenomena that psychologists call self-attribution fallacy or self-attribution bias. The belief held by some of those who've enjoyed a degree of success that everything they have achieved is solely down to their own talents and their own hard work. My journey through this industry makes it impossible for me to nurse any such delusion. I have been extraordinarily lucky. Because when I watched the McTaggart Lecture of 1998, the chances of a black person from my socio-economic background, with no industry contacts and no financial support, getting anywhere in the industry were not good. While I was trying to build a career in television, thousands of other men, of, men and women of colour were giving up on the industry, as I came close to doing more than once. Between 2006 and 2012, BAME employment in UK television declined by 30.9%. That means more black people left the industry than joined, at a time when the overall number of jobs in the industry as a whole was expanding. And black people are still leaving the TV industry at higher rates than their white colleagues, showing again the industry's failure has been not solely one of access, but also and critically one of retention. There is a brutal answer to the question, why are there no black controllers and so few black company owners and black commissioners, the people we need right now to bring their experience, their stories, their viewpoints and those of their communities into the TV industry? The answer is, we had them and we lost them. Some are in the independent sector, but many have left television altogether. They left because TV failed to support their careers and nurture their talents. They left because they never got that big next job, because no one championed them or helped plan their careers. They left because even when they got work, their voices too often were not listened to, their stories too often not of interest to the tastemakers and programme pickers who over the same period grew ever more powerful within the structure of television. They are not here now because we did not have the will to keep them. And worn out by it all, they gave up on our industry. In the summer of 2020, one member of TV's lost generation was at the centre of the Black Lives Matter moment. When the statue of the slave trader Edward Colston was toppled in Bristol at the beginning of June, very close to where I'm talking to you from today, every major news outlet rushed to secure an interview with Marvin Rees, the elected mayor of Bristol. Everybody wanted a piece of Marvin not just because he's mayor, but also because of his amazing backstory. A descendant of enslaved black people from Jamaica and of working class white Bristolians, he was brought up on council estates and yet rose to become mayor of a city that for 125 years had lionized and validated a slave trader. It was a great story with a, a leading man who was straight out of central casting, an articulate figure who saw events from a unique perspective, and to the utter delight of both print journalists and TV news crews from across the world, Marvin also turned out to be a brilliant interviewee. He knew how to deliver 
perfect sentences and neat sound bites, how to tell a story with an economy of words and yet still land the big ideas. He was every producer's dream interviewee. But there is a reason why Marvin is so good in front of camera, and that's because he spent years working behind camera at the BBC in Bristol. But the talents of the black guy who now runs a city were seemingly invisible to the people who then ran the newsroom. There were some who recognised his talents, skills and integrity, but not enough for him to have anything like the sort of investment in his career and career planning that I have seen lavished upon other people in my time in this industry. And recipients of that sort of career investment are those who managers and indie bosses can envisage one day doing their jobs. And I have to say, in my experience, those selected for such elevation tend to be carbon copies of the managers who champion their careers. Thwarted and marginalised, Marvin had the nerve to do what I was too timorous to do. He left television to look for other avenues for his talents and he was lost to the industry. He could be running a production company or be commissioning the very programmes we need right now to respond to the challenge thrown down by Black Lives Matter. Perhaps if Marvin's talents had been recognised, there might be no need to have a session asking when UK television will have its first black controller. As an historian, I can tell you that if you can run Bristol, a city so proudly political and radical that we had a mini riot over the unwanted opening of a small branch of Tesco's, if you can run Bristol, you can run a television channel. What are the consequences of this hemorrhaging of diverse talent? Well, it was the same newsroom in Bristol that last month decided that it was acceptable for a white reporter to use the N-word in a news report, leading to almost 20,000 complaints and an official apology from the Director General. If, however, in an alternative existence, Marvin might have been there or on the end of a phone line as a senior colleague to give advice, that incident that has genuinely damaged faith in the BBC in the eyes of many black people might have been avoided. Or perhaps in this alternative reality, Marvin might have gone into documentaries, perhaps into the history department that decided that it was reasonable for a white production team making a program dealing with slavery to write a script for a white presenter that also used the N-word. These damaging missteps, I believe, are a consequence of TV having lost a generation of people just like Marvin Rees, people who should now be among the leaders of our industry. I stayed in television because I lacked Marvin's courage, but also because making TV documentaries, particularly in my case, history and art documentaries, was what I really, really wanted to do. I'm a product of that incredible culture of public service broadcasting that emerged in this country almost a century ago. Documentaries, particularly those on the BBC, changed my life. They broadened my horizons. They fired in me passions that I still have today. And they inspired me to want to study history. Although, as I later discovered, when he drafted the high-minded principles of public service broadcasting, Lord Reith 
didn't exactly have people like me and my family at the forefront of his mind. I was in my mid-twenties when I made the decision to try to break into television. But that decision was founded not just on a love of documentary, but also on naivety. Because in all honesty, if I had known how lonely it was going to be being black and working class in this industry, how much the deck was stacked against me in terms of both race and class, I am sad to say I would never have attempted to build a career in television. Yet looking back, the clues were there from the start. If decades ago, this industry had set out to intentionally design mechanisms by which people like me from council estates with no contacts or family wealth to fall back on could have been kept out of the industry, it would have struggled to come up with anything more effective than the culture that existed when I joined the industry. First, there's the tradition of unpaid internships and work experience. Opportunities acquired often through contacts and only open to those with the financial resources to survive months of unpaid work, often in London, one of the most expensive cities in the world. One of the few real positives of recent years is the increase in the number of paid internships. Those who get over that hurdle then have to navigate the casual, informal forms of recruitment that favour those with soft skills and with backgrounds and interests similar to those doing the recruiting. On top of all that, there is our casual freelance culture of short-term contracts that makes work in our industry just too risky for many people from lower socio-economic backgrounds. Less talked about, but still present, is the invisible nexus of old-school ties and Oxbridge networks. What I learnt in my early years in TV is that there were parts of this industry in which diversity meant making sure there was a fair balance of people from Oxford and Cambridge. In my career, I've seen senior producers use the system of unpaid internships as a mechanism through which to bring young people who had attended their private schools into the industry and then mentor them and nurture their careers. I have seen the children of the influential and the famous given opportunities to get a foot in the door and launch careers. I have seen the privileged lifted over the barriers to entry that so effectively keep others out. Even when black people overcome these barriers and scale the high walls of television, they are all too often caught in a trap. They fall victim to a way of thinking that contains within it the same twisted logic as a witch trial. They are said to be lacking the experience needed to land the big career-advancing, reputation-enhancing jobs, which means they rarely get those jobs, which in turn means they never get the experience to dispel that portrayal. I know this because so many of the black people I've met in this industry have recounted being caught in that trap. I know this because I've spent much of my career in exactly that state of limbo. Yet from the outside, from the perspective of our audiences, TV appears to be doing much better at representing the nation. TV's lack of diversity and lack of career paths for black and brown people is often most pronounced in the parts of the industry that are least visible. In drama, BAME representation is far lower behind the camera 
than in front of it. On-screen contributions by BAME talent are more than three times higher than off-screen involvement. In children's television and in comedy, there are almost twice as many people from BAME backgrounds in front of camera than behind. There is a willingness to accept black people as performers in front of camera, but an unwillingness on the part of the industry to make space for them behind the scenes, in the rooms where the decisions are made and where the real creativity happens. When I became a presenter, I could not help but notice that the industry was far more comfortable with me in that capacity than it ever had been with me as a producer. I set up my own production company with my business partner as it seemed to be the only way I could remain a producer while also presenting. In this year's BAFTAs, I think you could see exactly this pattern at play. The Television Awards for 2020 recognised many of our successful diverse actors and presenters. Mo Gilligan, Naomi Akia, Idris Elba and Ramesh Ranganatham all won awards. Other BAFTA-winning shows had diverse casts and writers. In that most glamorous showcase, our industry's record on diversity looked good. But it was a completely different story at the BAFTA Craft Awards. Those that recognised the skills and talents of the people who make programmes, camera operators, sound engineers, directors, graphic designers. At this year's Craft Awards, there was not a single black or Asian winner. Black and brown people in this industry talk among ourselves about stalled careers, impossible barriers to progress. The other thing black people in TV talk about is of not being listened to. Two years ago, Michaela Cole talked from this platform about what she called her slave ship incident, in which she'd witnessed how black actors on one of her own productions had been expected to accept inferior treatment. Like many black people in the industry, that experience struck home. But in my case, it did so because I had one just like it. The irony is that mine took place actually on a reconstructed slave plantation we had built in Jamaica for a drama documentary. As we were filming in a remote part of the island, we set up our own catering. And on the first day, cast and crew and extras queued up for lunch. But without informing me, it had been decided that the actors and crew were to eat first. The extras would get their lunch afterwards. Standard procedure, perhaps. But the unintended effect was that white people ate first and black people only after they had finished. So beside a reconstructed 18th century slave village, on the actual site of a former slave plantation up in the hills of a former slave colony, the extras, themselves the descendants of enslaved people, queued up in the sun and waited for the white folk to finish their lunch. What was most shocking about this to me was that my white colleagues, good, decent, creative people, genuinely couldn't see the problem. But it was a problem that the black actors and the black extras had no difficulty seeing. When I challenged my colleagues, I was met with a wall of hostility and resistance. This, I was assured, had nothing to do with race. But then, in our industry, nothing ever has anything to do with race because our industry is full of people who have convinced themselves that they are colorblind. That's a laudable ambition, but here's the problem. 
being blind to race is being blind to the way race operates within our society. And that means being blind to the lived experiences of people of colour. One of my overwhelming memories, looking back at 20 years in television, is of loneliness. Because being the only black person in the room or on location is not just about skin colour. It's about differences of experience. Being the only black person on a production means being the only person asking certain questions. The only person uncomfortable often with an image or a sequence that reinforces or risks reinforcing certain stereotypes. Like other black people I know in this industry, I've spent my career complaining that scripts or rough cuts contain interviews with white experts, but all the black contributors are victims of the phenomena in question, or they're speaking about their personal experiences, their feelings, not their expertise. I've fought against directors who subconsciously believe that educated black people are somehow inauthentic, as if being uneducated and unlettered is the natural, authentic condition of people with darker skins. These tropes, this sort of unexamined thinking, when left unchallenged, can reinforce the stereotypes and inequalities that we should be challenging. I'm not saying that the viewpoints of black or Asian people are better or more deserving of consideration than those of our white colleagues. It's just that they are different. They're different because our lives and our experiences are different. And here, different does not mean any more or less impartial or journalistic. We can have a different perspective and still be just as impartial and as objective as anyone else. No industry training scheme and no amount of monitoring will lead to real change unless we accept that just having people of colour in the room is not enough. The industry also needs to listen to us, to value our perspectives and our stories, to understand that we come from a different place, we consume different culture, read different books and see the world from a different perspective and that those perspectives are valuable. When TV accepts this and listens to the creative visions of people like Michaela Cole and Steve McQueen, audiences are enthralled. Marginalising the voices of non-white producers and directors is, I believe, inhibiting our industry's ability to tell a wider range of stories. But it's also damaging non-white people themselves. There are consequences of always being in a minority of one, always seeing what others don't see. This takes a toll. My own history of depression testifies to that. When I asked Marvin Rees why he had finally given up and left the industry, this is what he said. The truth is, the BBC just wore me down with hopelessness. Of course, black people are not alone in being affected by what Variety magazine has called TV's mental health crisis. But seeking to escape from a work culture that is emotionally damaging is one of the reasons they often give for having decided to leave our industry. The culture of television is at times not only devastating to black people's mental and emotional health, it is also reputationally catastrophic. Many of the black people I've known in my years in TV have, at some point or other in their careers, been labelled 
difficult. One colleague I worked with complained endlessly that I was especially difficult. I was difficult whenever I talked about the sensitivities of black history or warned of the dangers of racial tropes or of unintentionally reinforcing racial stereotypes. I was, they told me, too political, too sensitive, too assertive. But my colleague had a solution. What I needed to do was to be more like another black person that they knew. This other black guy was far more relaxed. He was less caught up in all of this history stuff. He didn't feel the need to discuss race, racism, stereotypes, or any of that annoying stuff. If only I could be more like him, because then we would all just get along. This ideal black guy was someone my colleague would hang out with. He'd come round their house and listen to music in perfect racial harmony. As this piece of advice went on and I learnt more biographical details of this ideal black person, I began to wonder if perhaps the reason they were so unthreatening, so relaxed and so laid back, might have been because the black person I was being urged to emulate was my colleague's cannabis dealer. Don't know stuff. Don't have opinions that clash with mine. Don't challenge me or my presumptions. Be the sort of black person I'm comfortable with. Be more like a drug dealer. That is what I was told by a colleague in our industry. It often feels as if our diversity is cherished only so long as it doesn't upset or challenge the values and beliefs of those with power. Once stamped with the label difficult, with all its implied threats to career and career advancement, black people face an impossible choice. They can either stay silent about their views and their perspectives, or they can speak out and risk being rendered unemployable. These sorts of experiences are, I'm afraid, common among black and brown people in our industry. The failure to get the jobs needed to build careers, the failure to be listened to, the ease with which they are labelled difficult. Television's lost generation spent their careers in a strange Orwellian world of doublethink. They listened to announcement after announcement. They saw initiatives launched and they watched training schemes come and go. Yet at the same time, their own careers and those of people of colour around them withered on the vine. Official pronouncements and lived experiences bore little relationship to one another. The initiatives and training schemes of the past 30 years were largely focused on bringing black people into the industry. And the fundamental philosophy underlying them was that people of colour needed to be better trained and better instructed in how to fit in and get on within the industry, not that the culture of the industry itself needed to undergo any significant structural change. Black Lives Matter has transformed debates about race more profoundly than any phenomena I have known in my lifetime. Among the ideas the movement has forced into public consciousness is that the work of confronting racism and racial injustice is not the task of people of colour alone. If true diversity is our aim, the mechanism to achieve it 
is proactive inclusion, which entails not merely bringing black people into an industry, but also recognizing the ways in which the internal cultures of that industry can exclude, marginalize, and damage them. When we identify structural inequality, we need to make structural change, not merely seek to bring a new generation of people of color into a system that has historically failed them. But 30 years of failed initiatives and ineffective training schemes and the constant hemorrhaging of BAME talent has left behind another legacy, a lack of trust so deep that the announcements and the initiatives of 2020 have been met by many people of color, not with enthusiasm and excitement, but with a skepticism born of repeated disappointment. Proving that this time such skepticism is not warranted is among the biggest challenges facing the UK broadcasters and the indie sector. But there is, I honestly believe, real reason to be hopeful. This time it does feel different. The response of the UK broadcasters to Black Lives Matter are in some respects distinct from those of the past. There is a new determination among the broadcasters to drive diversity into senior management at board level and critically into commissioning. But is there a willingness for real structural and cultural change? And if there is, where will accountability come from? Who will determine if the money pledged is actually spent and if recruitment targets are actually met? When our industry has made big structural changes in the past, its success or failure has been measured and assessed by our industry regulator, Ofcom. But when it comes to diversity, Ofcom has a history of giving the broadcasters a clean bill of health, or at worst, a cursory note that they could do better, but with no consequences attached or even suggestions as to what better would look like. Just as there is an historic lack of trust towards the broadcasters, Ofcom, I am sad to say, lacks credibility and trust among many black and Asian program makers. If Ofcom is not able or willing to hold the industry accountable on diversity and inclusion, or able to use its power to set minimum standards, then the DCMS should set up a new body who is willing to do so. This moment in 2020, with so much money on the table and so many promises made, is the perfect time to bring such a body into existence. This is not asking for a revolution, it's merely asking for accountability. And it's not just the broadcasters who need to be held accountable. The part of our industry in which most people are employed is the independent production sector. The indies need to do better and they need to want to do better. All companies but particularly the larger ones, need to champion careers and spot talent. They need to recognize that many of the young black and brown people who have got a foot into the door of our industry have already climbed mountains of disadvantage that their privileged peers have never encountered and know little about. In the years me and my business partner have been running our small production company, what has made us most proud are not just the programs we've made, but the diverse teams we've assembled to make them, both behind and in front of camera. At the beginning of every production, we ask ourselves, what will the team photograph look like? Will it resemble the country we actually live in, the audiences we actually serve? Like every company, we've got much more to do.
when we've seen real upheaval in our industry in the past, they have been about restructuring the industry with regards to who has power. In my time in television, the broadcasters and the independent sector have made enormous progress in addressing TV's long-standing London bias. Look at the energy, inventiveness and decisiveness that went into that. New production bases willed into existence in Salford, Leeds, Glasgow and here in Bristol, with the Indies rushing to set up offices in those cities and to cultivate local production talent. Both Indies and broadcasters need to find the same energy and apply it to diversity and inclusion. We have to fully own this problem and find the will to affect change, and we need to do it now. Because 2020 hasn't just been one of those dramatic years in politics. It's been a moment of generational change. The pandemic, the reason we're not together in Edinburgh today, took the older generations off the streets and handed those streets over to the young, who used that space to make demands about the issues that matter to them. There is one thing about this generation that I have learnt while lecturing and while talking to the young people who read my books or watch the programmes I present. And it's something that I don't think we in this industry yet fully appreciate. This generation's attitude to race and discrimination is profoundly different from that of previous generations. They don't just oppose racism, they are repelled by it. They are disgusted by it. Young people in this country, both black and white, simply do not want to live in a society disfigured by racism and racial inequality. And they are willing to have the difficult conversations that the generations before them chose to avoid. At its core, Black Lives Matter is a global movement with a simple message. Silence, inaction, or ineffective action is not neutrality, it's complicity. The generation that is leading this global shift in consciousness and for whom these principles are sacred is also a generation that our industry is at risk of losing. They are a generation we have yet to convince of the lessons I learned in my childhood, of the magical, transformative, educative power of public service broadcasting. This is a generation to whom we have yet to demonstrate our relevance. We can do that by listening to them on this and other issues. So in the end, it comes down to this. Does our industry have the will to genuinely share power with those who have for so very long been marginalised and silenced? Thank you. This year's festival, Olashoga will join forces with three former McTaggart lecturers, Armando Iannucci, Dorothy Byrne and Jack Thorne, to reflect on the impact of each of their addresses. The festival will take place in Edinburgh from the 24th to the 26th of August. To buy passes and find out more information, visit our website, thetvfestival.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at EdinburghTVFest.